Revelation chapter 12, Revelation 12, verses 7 through 17. It says, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, and times, and half a time." The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Now, We see in our study tonight that there is a war that happens, or is going to be a war. This war hasn't happened yet. This war in heaven is when it's going to happen at the midpoint of the tribulation during that last seven-year period. And there's going to be a war in heaven in the angelic realm between Michael and the angels that are the good angels, if you will, and Satan and his angels. And we'll get to more of that later in our study. And Satan will be defeated, and he will be cast down to the earth along with the demons. And the Bible says that he knows that his time is short and he's going to go after a whole lot of folks. First, he's going to go after Israel. As you know, we've already seen in our studies, he's going to run off into the wilderness and be protected. Actually, only one third of Israel is going to make it through that time. And they're going to be protected by God for the last three and a half years until Jesus returns. And because he's not able to get after Israel anymore, because they're being protected, he's then going to go after anyone that believes in Jesus. And it's going to be a really, really hard time for Christians during that last three and a half years on this earth. But what we're going to see is, if you remember from our last time we were together two weeks ago, our study showed us uh, the dragon had seven heads and ten horns. Remember that? And if you remember from, well, go to chapter 12 here, look at verse 9. We see really clearly some descriptions of Satan that I think will help us tonight. Because we're going to go somewhere tonight in our study that you probably aren't really ready for, but I can't wait to take you there. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. How is Satan described here? He's described as a what? A serpent? What else? A dragon, and also the deceiver of the world. All right, so this is going to be important, because we're going to be going somewhere tonight with this study. And I'm going to show you that these terms dragon and serpent have been all throughout the whole scriptures as a description of Satan. And so what I want to do is kind of remind you of our study last time, though. We saw that the, we looked in Daniel 7, that there was a beast, and the beast had seven heads and ten horns. But here we now see the dragon, which is Satan, having seven heads and ten horns. Actually, if you go to Revelation 13, look with me at Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 through 8, you're going to see how 
The seven-headed dragon is the same as the seven-headed beast in Daniel. Even though the beast is the one, last one world power, it's going to be headed up by the Antichrist and empowered by Satan himself. That's why we see these terminologies in these descriptions kind of synonymous. Look at Revelation 13, 1 through 8. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its, its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have more have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority, there we see it again, for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming His name and His dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it, Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Now we're going to be getting, diving into this section, Revelation 13, the next time we get together in two weeks. And we're going to go into that in more detail. So I'm not going to spend too much time on this. I just kind of want to catch you up to where we are so we can go where we need to go. We see that Satan is described as a dragon and he has seven heads and ten horns. But we also see that there's this beast which represents the Antichrist in the one last one world kingdom which has seven heads and ten horns. And the reason why the pictures are synonymous is because in this last one world power headed up by the Antichrist, it's going to be empowered by who? Satan. Ultimately, he's the, the, the driving force behind it all. Actually, as we look at the scriptures, you're going to see that when Satan's thrown down to the earth, at that point, he's actually going to indwell that human being called the Antichrist and empower him in ways that are going to be unbelievable going to be able to do miracles and all this stuff, and people are going to just start thinking he's God, and it's going to be an amazingly bad, bad time. But look at verse 8 of Revelation 13. It just says, And all who dwell on the earth will worship it, this is the beast, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Now, Next time we get together, I'm going to take you through a full study of the book of life and the blotting out and can you be blotted out and all these types of things. We're going to lay that all out. So that's going to be something for another time. So don't get bogged down in that. But I want to just point out that the scripture says everyone's going to worship the beast. Well, everyone whose name has not been written since when? Before the foundation of the earth. Again, wait till two weeks from now to get into the fully understanding of that. But here's where we're going tonight. I want to take you through a very, very detailed study with a lot of scriptures. I'm telling you now, get your paper out, get your pens out, because we're going to look at more than you probably have ever imagined. I'm going to take you through a detailed study tonight to show you that I believe that this battle between Satan and God began before the earth was created. Now, please listen clear carefully. You don't have to agree with me. Because even if Satan's rebellion happened after the creation of the world, the Bible tells us already that God already knew that he was going to rebel, and everything he's doing is because of his foreknowledge. Doesn't the Bible say that Jesus was slain before the foundations of the earth? 
Well, why was Jesus slain before the foundations of the earth unless God already knew that he would need to have Jesus be slain to cover sin and deal with all this issue? But I'm going to take some time tonight to take you down a hypothesis that I believe I can show scripturally. I believe Satan's rebellion, Satan's fall from his position of beauty and greatness that he had been given by God, I believe his rebellion happened before God made the world. And that actually his making of the world and the universe and everything that we see was for the purposes of God displaying his glory, listen carefully, to the angels, not only the angels that rebelled, but the angels who didn't rebel. And that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to go down that road and do this full study to deal with this. And you're going to find it's going to get pretty interesting because you may see some things that you've never, ever seen before in the Bible as we go through this. Again, even if Satan's rebellion happened after the creation of the world, it doesn't change anything we say tonight because God already knew and he always works everything according to his plan. All right. But go with me to Colossians chapter one. Colossians chapter one and look at verse 16. As the scripture describes Jesus in chapter one, in verse 15, he says he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Look at verse 16. For by him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Now, this is something I want you to understand for where we understand where we're going. Jesus made everything. But he made things in heaven. And he made things on the earth. He made things that are visible and he made the things that are invisible. Okay, you with me so far? Go with me to Job chapter 38, because the Bible shows us that the angels, the invisible realm, the angels existed before the creation of the world. Job chapter 38, verses 1 through 7. As we lay this foundation here, Job at this point has had all this stuff happen to him that God's allowed and he's allowed Satan. And as you know, there's been this thing going on between Satan and God and Job just happens to be the piece they're using on the earth to deal with it. And Job gets to a point where he says, I wish I could have a face to face with God, but who can have a face to face with God? It's not a fair thing that he gets to do all this stuff and we don't get to talk back. And God shows up here in chapter 38 and look at what he says. The Lord, verse one, answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsel? by words without knowledge. Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the whole line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. You see it? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth, Job? Since you think you can have a face to face with me and defend your case and prove your case against me and say that you're right and I'm wrong. Uh, I tell you what, you go and ask me some questions. Go right ahead. But let me ask you a few first. And by the way, you're going to see he asked Job questions from chapter 38, 39, 40, 41. But his question was, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth and all the angels watched and celebrated? So we know from this that the angels existed before the creation of the world. Now, for years, people have said, well, Jim, Satan couldn't have fallen 
before the creation of the world because God saw all that He had made in Genesis 1, we see, all that He had made in Genesis 2, and it was good. So if everything He had made was good, how could Satan have fallen yet? Hang on for a second. Does Genesis chapter 1 describe the visible and the invisible part of creation or only the visible? Only the visible part. So we've already seen the angels already existed when he starts to lay the visible part of creation. And so in Genesis chapter 1, God saw all that he had made in the visible part of realm. We don't see the angels listed in the creation story at all. We don't actually see the things in heaven. We see the heavens, meaning the sun and the moon and the stars, the things, the visible part of creation. But we don't see the invisible. I believe the invisible already was created at this point. What we see in Genesis 1 and 2, when God saw all that he had made and it was good, is the visible part of creation. And there's something that, that John said in 1 John chapter 3 that will really help us a lot. Go to 1 John chapter 3 and look at verse 8. 1 John chapter 3, but we're back by the end of your Bible there. Look at verse 8. John says in 1 John 3 verse 8, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning. It doesn't say we don't sin, but we don't, we don't like it. For he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Now, I just read you verse 9 because that shows you how blind I am. Let me read verse 8. Verse 9 is good, though. Look at verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Wait a minute. Here we see that Satan now has been sinning from the beginning. Well, we've got to stop and say the beginning of what? Because if you know anything about what the Bible says about Satan... He was created in perfection and beauty, wasn't he, when he was first created? If you don't know what I'm talking about, go with me to Ezekiel chapter 28. Let me show you what the Bible says. Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 11 through 15. And I can hear by the pages turning less and less, you're getting weary already. And we haven't even just started. Write it down. Write them down. There you go. That makes you feel better. Thanks, Mark. Ezekiel 28, look at verses 11 through 15. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz and diamond, beryl, onyx and jasper, sapphire, emerald and carbuncle and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until righteous, unrighteousness was found in you. So when Satan was created, he was created in perfection and beauty until unrighteousness was found in him. But John says that Satan's been sinning since the beginning. Can it be the beginning of his creation? Can't be. But how does the Bible start again in Genesis chapter 1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Wait a minute. We already know that the angels were created prior to this. So could the beginning mean the beginning of creation? What does it say in John chapter 1? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was 
with God, and the Word was God. Again, we see that term, the beginning, meaning the beginning of the creation of what we know as the visible part of creation. So if Satan has been sinning from the beginning, there's a chance that his fall happened prior to the creation of the world. All right? Again, it doesn't change anything if his rebellion happened after the creation of the world. I've wrestled with this a lot. Because if you go to look at what he says about him in Isaiah 14, he says, I want to ascend above the stars and above the clouds. And some would say, wait a minute, Jim. If he's wanting to ascend above the stars and the clouds, that means he's on the earth. Well, actually, if you do a study of those words, you'll find that stars could mean angels and clouds meaning the glory of God. Because a lot of times we see the word cloud refer to God's glory, not just what we call puffy clouds, cumulonimbus. And David says he was in the garden of God. Sure, he was in the garden of God. But that doesn't mean he was perfect in the garden of God. It just says you was there. Again, and they were going somewhere with this. I believe the Bible gives us hints to the fact that this rebellion of Satan happened before the creation of everything we see. And all that's been going on throughout all of history has been a battle between God and Satan. And he's been using his creation, man, who's been created in his image, yet lower than the angels, to display his glory to the angels. Let me show you what I mean. Go to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, look at verses 7 through 13. Paul says, of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known, look closely, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places." This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. What's been his eternal purpose according to this passage? I'm sorry? To show the rulers and authorities what? God's manifold wisdom. The greatness of God. And it was planned to be done through Jesus Christ from the beginning. Since before the foundation of the world. Since before the beginning. I believe this battle that is raging right now on this earth, and we're going to look at it in more detail scripturally as to what's going on in the spiritual realm tonight. I believe this battle's been going on not only since the beginning of time, since before the beginning of time, and everything in time and space that we see has been created by God for His purposes to display His glory to the angels. Let me give you another example. Go to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, look at verses 10, 11, and 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit. Think, sorry, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which... Angels long to look. 
Why are angels curious about what God's doing down here? Well, the Bible shows us that part of the reason is, is because God's doing something down here for his purposes of displaying something, something to the angels. You know that passage that's given everybody a bellyache over the years about how Jesus went and preached to the spirits in prison? You remember that? We're going to look more at later on at some of these spirits and who are in prison. But the Bible says, and we don't know exactly when it happened because people for years have been taught that Jesus, when he died, descended into hell and then three days later he rose from the dead. And many of you grew up in churches where they said the Apostles' Creed and the Apostles' Creed says he descended into hell. Folks, that's not what the Bible teaches. He didn't descend into hell when he died because the Bible said he said to the thief on the cross today, you'll be with me where? In paradise. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He had already also cried out to telestai in the Greek. It is finished. It's an accounting term. Paid in full. If it had already been paid in full, he didn't have to go to hell to suffer for three days. Folks, he didn't go and descend into hell like the Apostles' Creed said. He died on that cross and went right into the presence of the Father. Listen to me, though. The Bible does tell us that at some point, whether it's during that time or whatever, he did go and preach to the spirits in prison. And that word preach means proclaim victory. And I'm going to show you tonight that those spirits who were in prison were the, some of the fallen angels. This, everything that's going on, I'm going to help you out. It's going to be something you're going to struggle with until Jesus gets us out of these bodies. But it ain't about us. How many times do we say, where was God? I needed him. How many times do we think that this is about us? And we get upset because things aren't working out the way we think they ought to. And how many times have we said over the years, if I were God? Be careful. Somebody else already said that. And it got him in a lot of trouble. I'm going to show you, folks, that one thing that will help you is tonight, as we look at this in more detail, we need to get to a place that says, I am just a part of something that God has put together to display his glory to the angels. And one day it will make sense. And right now it may not, but I'm okay with that because he's already proven through what he did through Jesus Christ that he's good and he's great. And I'm going to daily lay my stinking flesh on the altar and renew my mind and say, Lord, even in those times that I don't understand, even though you slay me, yet will I trust you. Remember back in Revelation chapter 12, they conquered by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they what? They love not their lives even unto death. It isn't about right now. It isn't about by, I mean, with what's going on in California right now, people are going, well, how come God allows this? Let me give you the answer biblically. We don't know. And we have to be willing to say, but God has a plan and we trust him. We trust him. We don't have to know. By the way, doesn't Ephesians 6 verses 10 through 12 say that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, do we? The issue isn't your nasty neighbor. The issue isn't your boss who isn't treating you right. The issue isn't this relative that you just don't get along with. The Bible says that our battle's really against who? Principalities and authorities of evil in the heavenly realm. Folks, there's something else going on here a little bit bigger. And when you focus on only what you can see, if you focus on only the visible part of creation, you're going to miss what really is going on. 
That's why in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, the men and women who were commended for their faith, they didn't live for this life. They lived for the next one. What did the Bible say about Jesus? Who for the joy set before him, what was to come? He endured the cross, despising its shame. John the Baptist, they came up to him and they said, uh, don't you realize um, that guy you pointed to over there across the Jordan, uh, he's baptizing and all these people are going to him. John's answer was awesome. He said, a man can only receive what he's been given from above. I'm the friend of the bridegroom. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. And when the bridegroom shows up, the friend takes the back seat. He must increase. I must decrease. The purpose for which God created me has been accomplished. He's here now. I'm to disappear. Second, first, Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 9. I won't go through all the, through verse 9, but the first part of it says this. Let, not, let you not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but each with sober judgments in accordance with the measure of faith that you've been given. If your role is serving, just serve. If your role is administering, administer. If your role is giving, give generously. If your role is this, do that. Folks, stop trying to do more for God. Stop looking around like saying, why aren't more people doing what I'm doing? And be willing to say, Lord, what's your plan and your purpose for me? Because you created me for a reason. And you chose when I'd be born and where I'd be born. Acts 17, 25 tells us that. He chose the exact places we would live and the time set for us. And you are the one who not only saved me, you're the one who's gifted me, and you have a purpose for my life. And Paul became satisfied when he realized, as much as I want to see the Jews saved, as much as I kept going synagogue to synagogue, I finally realized God has chosen me before I was even born to be a preacher to the Gentiles. And I'm just going to preach to the Gentiles in hopes that they're doing that, the Jews will get jealous. Stop trying to figure it out. Stop trying to do more. And be willing to say, Lord, if this is all you have for me, I'll embrace it. Because Satan was the one who had been given a role, a tremendous role. He's one of the cherubim. He's one of those ones we see in the wheels within the wheels that we already read about. The ones who walks there under the throne of God and amongst the stones of fire. He had been given a tremendous role and he said, I want more. But what did Jesus say? The Bible says that he submitted himself to the role the Father had for him. And that role was death. And not only just death, but death on a cross. But I want to take you tonight into something that you might not have ever seen before. Some of you may. Many of you may not. In God creating the animals, he made one animal that was a picture of Satan. This animal's name was Leviathan. And listen close to me. It was a fire-breathing dragon. Your commentaries, when we go to this passage, turn to Job 41. I'll show you what I'm talking about. Your commentaries will sometimes say a crocodile. As we read this tonight, you'll realize this was no crocodile. Sometimes they try to say behemoth was a hippo. You compare the tail of a hippo and the, the tail of behemoth, and you realize it wasn't a hippo either. But in Job 41, remember, God already started asking Job questions in verse chapter 38. And now we're in chapter 41, and God's still asking Job questions. But look closely, because remember, and we're going to go back and read Revelation 12, and it's going to make a whole lot more sense after all this. Look at, 
Look at um, Job chapter 41, and we're going to read the whole chapter, but look closely at what it says. He says to Job, Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook? Or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird? Or will you put him on a leash for your girls? Will traders bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, the hope of a man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then can stand, is he who can stand before me? In other words, God said, I've made an animal that you can't even control or touch. And who are you to think you can stand against me when there's an animal on this earth you can't even defeat? Who was first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Stop there. We got We're going to keep reading this chapter. We can't go, We can't. We can't just skip over that. Paul actually quotes from this right here in Romans 11, 33 through 36, when he says, Oh, the depth of the wisdom and the riches and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, his paths beyond tracing out. In other words, you're never going to figure God out. And then he says, who's ever given to God that God should repay him? In other words, what does God owe you? Who's ever been his counselor? For from him and to him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Folks, how many of you had to say whether or not you were going to be born? But isn't it ironic that even though we had no say whether or not we were even going to show up on this planet, we come onto this planet wanting to take over. Don't we? You want proof? Give birth to kids. They have no say, yet they show up on the earth and they're going to tell you when they want to be fed and how they want to be fed and whether or not they're going to go to bed. And all of a sudden they're in charge. And it's a battle till you, well, it's still a battle probably, who knows. But we have this same problem because Satan infected us with that same attitude. God keeps asking, listen to the description now of this dragon, this fire breathing dragon. I will not keep silence, verse 12, I will not keep silence concerning his limbs or his mighty strength or his goodly frame. Who can strip off his outer garment? Who would come near him with a bridle? Who can open the doors of his face? Around his teeth is terror. His back is made of rows of shields shut up closely as with a seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. His sneezings flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. Out of his mouth go flaming torches. Sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils comes forth smoke, as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals, and a flame comes forth from his mouth. His, in his neck abides strength, and terror dances before him. The folds of his flesh stick together, firmly cast on him and immovable. His heart is as hard as stone, hard as the lower millstone. When he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid. At the crashing, they are beside themselves. 
Though the sword reaches him, it does not avail, nor the spear, the dart, or the javelin. He counts iron as straw and bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. For him, sling stones are turned to stubble. Clubs are counted as stubble. He laughs at the rattle of javelins. His underparts are like sharp parts, potsherds. He spreads himself like a threshing sledge on the mire. He makes the deep boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. By the way, that wasn't a small animal to be able to do this. Behind him, he leaves a shining wake. One would think the deep to be white-haired. On earth, there is not his like, a creature without fear. He sees everything that is high, and listen closely to this last sentence. He is king over all the sons of pride. Isn't that interesting? God in his creation, during those six days of creation, when he made the animals, he made one animal that represented Satan. And it's called Leviathan. And it was a fire-breathing dragon that the people on the earth stayed far away from. By the way, has anybody ever thought about the fact that so many different cultures and nations throughout history have in their history these stories about fire-breathing dragons? All around the world. You know why? There was one. Maybe more, but at least one. How come he's not here? I'll tell you why. The Bible tells us. God killed him. The Bible actually tells us. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Again, this is a cool study because a lot of this stuff people have never seen before. Go to uh, um, Psalm 104. You're in Job. Just turn over one book to Psalm 104, verses 24 through 26. In Psalm 104, verses 24 through 26, O Lord, how manifold are your works! In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships, and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. There it is. Oh, but it gets better. Go to Psalm 74. Back up to Psalm 74. I want you to pay close attention to something that's said here. Psalm 74, look at verses 12 through 14. Yet God, my King, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. Here we see that God killed Leviathan. Did anybody catch it? Heads. Leviathan had more than one head. Is anybody starting to see how this is all coming together? Because he made an animal. We don't know how many heads it had, but it had more than one. I wouldn't be surprised if that sucker didn't have seven heads. Because in Revelation, we see that ancient serpent, the devil, also the dragon with seven heads. It's all been here. Let me just take a quick little second to and help you to remember. Let the scriptures be what you base what you believe on, uh, not paintings or Christmas musicals. That's another story for another time. Let me just tell you a little quick little aside. If you go to my website, 
click on Bible studies and click on where was Jesus born, you'll find that he wasn't born in a stable behind an inn, which is what we've been told for years. He was born at the base of a watchtower called Migdal Eder, or the Tower of the Flock. Micah chapter 4, verse 8 tells us exactly where he was born. And he was laid in a manger, and he was wrapped in swaddling cloth, just like the Scripture said. Oh, here's the cool part. You go to my, my Bible study there on the website, and you'll see it. He was born in the exact same place the temple lambs were born. The Passover lambs, those angels that were in the, in the fields nearby, weren't ordinary shepherds. They were the temple shepherds watching the Passover lambs. And when they were told this will be a sign for you, you'll find the baby wrapped in cloth and lying in a manger, they knew exactly where it was. It was the exact same place that the temple lambs were brought. Because when they were to give birth, they, couldn't be with, they had to be without blemish and without spot. And what they would do was they would, when they gave birth, quickly wrap them in cloth to keep them from getting marked up. And the Bible actually tells us, not only in Micah 5, 2, that he'd be born in Bethlehem, in Micah chapter 4, verse 8, it says, O you, tower of the flock, to you, former dominion's going to come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Jesus was born in the base of the Tower of Eder, which is there on the outskirts of Bethlehem. And the shepherds were not ordinary shepherds. They were temple shepherds watching the Passover lambs in the same Jesus who fulfilled the role of the Passover lamb, even to the day that he rode in Jerusalem, was crucified at that time, sacrificed at the time the Passover lambs were being sacrificed. He was born in the exact same place that the Passover lambs were born. And that's pretty cool. Amen. But we base most of what we believe on musicals and pageants and paintings. How many of you have ever seen a picture of Satan in the garden talking to Eve? What form is he in these paintings? He's a serpent. He's a snake, right? Does he have any legs? No. Well, it's interesting. Because if you remember what the Bible says, he says to the snake after he tempts Eve, because you've done this, you're going to crawl on your belly the rest of your life. Well, if he's already a serpent, it's no curse to crawl on your belly if you've already been crawling on your belly. It was an animal that stood upright. Might even have been a dragon. Again, let the scriptures build. Folks, there's so much here. My prayer is by the end of this revelation study, if Jesus tarries, you have gotten so fired up about the fact that, you know what? All these years I thought that was really weird, but actually the Bible's been talking about it 17 times. We've missed it. Go to Isaiah 27. Isaiah 27, verse 1. We've already seen that in Psalm 74 that there was a time in time past that God killed Leviathan and all its heads, and he fed it to the animals of the earth. Demonstrating his ability to handle the animal that no man could touch. The dragon that no man could handle. Look at Isaiah 27 verse 1. In that day, this is a future time folks. The Lord with his hand, sorry, with his hard and great and strong sword will punish who? Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. This is yet to come. We're going to see about it tonight in just a little bit. Now, going back with me to Revelation chapter 12, and tell me if this doesn't make a whole lot more sense to us now. Revelation chapter 12, listen to verses 7 and following again. Now, war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. 
And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Folks, I want you to understand something. People say, well, God can't be in the presence of evil. Yeah, he can. Because the Bible says Satan appears in his presence daily, accusing the brothers. He's still in his presence now. Satan is not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at once like God can. But he's able to pass back and forth between dimensions. And I say between dimensions because we picture heaven way off. But to be honest with you, it could be right here and we just not see it or taste it or notice it. God, every now and then, we see in the scriptures, would make human bodies able to sense the spiritual realm. But it's real and it's right here. But Satan's allowed in that spiritual realm to be in the presence of God. We see it in the book of Job, chapter 1 and chapter 2, when the angels appeared before God and Satan came with him. But at this point, in a time future, at the midpoint of the tribulation period, Satan's going to try his revolt again this time, and he's going to fight against Michael and the angels of God, and he and his angels will be defeated, and he'll be cast down to the earth out of the presence of God, never to be allowed in his presence again. And during that last little bit, he's going to be on the earth for three and a half years, and buddy, you don't want to be on the earth when that happens. You can't even imagine what it's going to be like. Let me just give you a little glimpse. We're going to read later on in our study about how there's going to be an army of 200 million come after in the people on the earth. And people for years have tried to say that was China. Because in our way of figuring it out, they're the only one that had enough to have an army of 200 million. If you did the math and actually did the research, you'd find that an army of 200 million humans couldn't fit in Israel. But when we look at it, when we get there, you're going to see that they are actually demons. The army of 200 million is going to come out of the pit. And they're going to go after people during this time period. Satan and his angels are going to be cast down to the earth. And demons are going to be allowed to attack people. It's not going to be a good time. It's not going to be a good time. And so let's deal with this for a second. We see in Revelation 12 that Satan and his angels fought against Michael and his angels. What does it mean, Satan's angels? Well, we saw earlier in chapter 12 that he swept a third of the stars with his tail from the sky. Chances are real good that a third of all the angels that God created before the creation of the world, a third of them joined Satan in his rebellion. And I want to lay out for you tonight in the time that we have left that actually, just like there are hierarchies, if you will, of angels on the good side. Remember, there's archangels. There's cherubim. There's seraphim. There's ministering servants. There's different levels of authority in the good side of the angels, there's often different levels of angels on the bad side. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Go to Jude 6. Jude 6. You say, which chapter? You've never read Jude. Jude 6. It says, in the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. If you know about Genesis chapter 6, there were some angels that actually cohabited with women on the earth and made babies. You remember, God had told Satan, a seed of this woman is going to crush your head. Satan's not all-knowing. So he doesn't know which seed of this woman, which child of this woman. That's why when Cain and Abel were born and Abel was righteous and Cain wasn't, (laughs) Satan says, it must be this righteous one that's going to get me. And he had Cain kill Abel. And you'll see this 
chess match go back and forth all throughout time. Joseph, the favored one, let's get him. All the way through, he goes after them. He doesn't know. But by Genesis 6, though, Satan says, if I can corrupt the seed, I can maybe stop this. And so angels actually made babies with women on the earth. That's where the giants, the Nephilim, came from. And because of this, God says, i got to start over. And he saves Noah and his family and kills everybody else. He starts fresh. But what did he do with those angels who left their position of authority and did that? The Bible says he put them in chains, and they're being held until when? Until the day of judgment. These angels aren't free to do anything, and you're in my life. They're in chains that have been for thousands of years. Go to first, uh, sorry, 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Stick with me because I can't wait to show you how we're going to wrap this all up. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Then he goes on and talks about how he's brought other judgment. He also knows how to take care of the wicked, he says. But look at what he says. He has taken some angels that have sinned and he's put them in places of judgment and they're held there until the day of judgment. But we also know that not all the angels are in that place because the Bible shows us, we already saw in Revelation chapter 12, that there's going to be a future battle between Satan and his angels against Michael and his angels. So there's going to be a battle. So there must be some angels that are still free to fight. Well, go with me to Daniel chapter 10. Daniel chapter 10, verses 12 through 14, and then verses 18 through 21. Daniel 10, 12 through 14, and then 18 through 21. Then he said to me, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. And, he came to, and, and I came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. Good verse 18. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed on the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. So here this angel talking to Daniel gives him a little insight and says, look, when you started praying, we heard your prayer right away. And I was dispatched right away to bring you the answer. But I had to fight for 21 days for three weeks against what? Who? The prince of Persia. There was a battle going on in the spiritual realm. Listen closely. Have you ever been in a place where you couldn't see it, but you could sense it? There's evil here. Have there been parts of the globe, cities in America, or parts of the world which you could just sense the evil here is thick? You don't really see it as much as definitely there's some evidence of it in the physical realm as well. But the Bible shows us there are places where Satan has stronger holds. The Bible calls strongholds as well in our individual lives. And so when this angel came to bring the message to Daniel, he couldn't get through this powerful evil angel, the prince of Persia, 
and his kings that were fighting with him in the spiritual realm until Michael, the one who defends Israel, comes and defeats them so they could get through. And he says, I'm going to go back and fight some more. And then the king of Greece is going to come. There's battles going on right now in the spiritual realm. Let me tell you it again. It's been going on for a long time. And I hate to break it to you. You're not the big deal. We're just pieces in this battle. But we're precious. Don't miss this. Satan hates you. Not just because you're a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ. He hates the unbelievers. You know why? Anybody have any idea why? Because you were created in the image of God. And he hates God. But the Bible says that we're precious in God's sight. I don't feel precious sometimes with all that's going on. Why did so-and-so die? How come this cancer keeps coming back? How come I seem like I have to struggle to make ends meet? How come things aren't going like I want them to? That's what we're really saying, aren't we? Folks, get up every morning and lay your flesh on the altar. It's your spiritual act of worship. It's your reasonable service. You see, because of the fact that he just said at the end of chapter 11, it's all about him, for him, and through him. All things are about him. In view of his mercy, in view of the fact that this is really all about God and his glory and Jesus and how Ephesians 1 says everything's going to be brought under the head of Jesus and it's all his eternal plan is going to make sense as it all culminates in Jesus. In view of the fact that it's all about him, yet he's chosen to let us be a part of what he's doing and using us for his purposes if we let him, if we humble ourselves and submit ourselves and have the same attitude, which is ours in Christ Jesus, which he didn't seek more, but he humbled himself to the role that God had given him. The Bible says that one day God is going to actually elevate us over the angels. Are you willing to hang on until then? Or is it going to be about you and what you want? Go to Luke chapter 8 real quick. we got time to do this. Luke chapter 8. Not only are there powerful angels that uh, some are in chains, others are able to fight against Michael and his angels a little bit. In Luke chapter 8, we see evil spirits and demons. It says in Luke chapter 8, verse 1, Soon afterward he, meaning Jesus, went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. I'm going to stop real quick and just say this without going too much detail, because I don't want to get bogged down on something. But sometimes our physical ailments are tied to spiritual issues. Don't take it too far and think that if someone's sick, they've got a sin in their life, because that's not what the Bible teaches at all. But some things are tied to spiritual issues. And that's why it doesn't hurt to, when things like that are happening, do a sin checklist or to go to the elders of the church and have them pray for you. But sometimes God says this has nothing to do with it. And I'll get right to you. Sometimes something has nothing to do with that. And like Paul said, I prayed three times for him to remove this thorn in my flesh. And God says, no, I'm leaving it there for my purposes. Go ahead. Job, Job was open boils. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. You ever think about the fact that in John chapter 9, the Bible says the disciples see this guy who had been born blind. He'd been that way 38 years. And he says, who sinned? They said, who sinned? 
him or his parents that he was born blind. Because we've been taught by the Pharisees that if you're sick, it's because God's mad at you. Because you sinned. Um, so he was born blind. So either he sinned in the womb or his parents sinned. What did Jesus say? He said, neither. He didn't say this guy's never sinned. He said, this isn't because he sinned in the womb or because his parents sinned. He was born this way for the glory of God. In other words, God chose for his purposes to glorify his son Jesus. On that day that Jesus heals him, he chose for the guy to be born blind and to be blind for a long, long time until that day that Jesus gets glory by healing him. So you're telling me, Jim, that God would cause someone to suffer so he could get glory. Isn't that why you go to church? Exactly. Isn't that what we sing about every Sunday? Don't we sing and raise our hands and sometimes dance when the curtains are drawn and praise the Lord that he caused Jesus to suffer so that we would be glorified? Isn't it interesting how we got no problem with Jesus having to go through that so we can receive glory? But we got a problem if he makes us go through that so he can receive glory. It ain't about you. All right, Jim, what good does all this information do us? I mean, Jim, you spent the whole night. We haven't really looked at Revelation much tonight. And you spent the whole night dealing with how there's been this battle between God and Satan, either from the beginning or prior to the beginning of the creation of the world. And it's been going on and it's going to get worse and there's going to be a battle, but there's going to be another one after that. What's the point? Why are you telling us all this? Here's why. Revelation chapter 20 tells us why. Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. And then Revelation 27 through 10. That war that we read about in Revelation 12 is not the final battle. There'll be a few more skirmishes after that one. In Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who was the devil and Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. Look at verse 7. And when the thousand years were ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night for how long? Forever and ever. Here's why I've told you all this, folks. We know who wins. We've already been shown who wins. And I'm going to put it to you in a way I want you to stick with me. I'm not promoting gambling here. But if you knew who was going to win the Super Bowl this year, not pretty sure, had a really good hunch, if you knew who was going to win, wouldn't you put everything you had on that game? Jim, we're not allowed to bet. Hang on for a second. I always tell my wife, when I, a lot of times I'll turn to my wife and say, I bet you. She goes, Jim, we don't gamble. I go, it's not a gamble when I know I'm going to win. You know, so, but just stick with the illustration. I'm not promoting gambling. Stick with the illustration. Remember Back to the Future? 
when Biff got a hold of the almanac? And how did he get rich? Because he knew who was going to win all the games. If you already know who's going to win, why don't you put everything you have on the winning team? Go with me to Matthew chapter 13. Jesus already told us to do that. Jeff, can I ask a question real quick? Yeah, go for it. It said, and the devil who had deceived them mm-hmm. was thrown down. What, this is at the end of the thousand years. That's at the end of the thousand years. He, well, what do you mean the devil that deceived them? We're up there in heaven because we weren't deceived. Oh, no, no. After the thousand years, there's going to be all those babies born during the thousand years. He's going to deceive them. He's going to be cast into the pit. He's going to be cast into the pit at the end of the thousand years. Look at Matthew 13. Look at 44 through 46. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Folks, I'm a Seminole fan. I know that's going to make some of you love me and some of you hate me, but we won. But I didn't enjoy the Gator game this past Saturday, even though I was in Gainesville watching it. I wasn't at the game at the field, but my, my wife's parents lived just outside of Gainesville in a little town called Waldo. And we were sitting at their house watching the game. And I'm one of these fans. I've seen enough of these games that things can turn in a heartbeat. It don't matter what the records are when the rivalry games happen. And even though we were winning pretty easily the whole game, I kept telling my family, especially my daughter who goes to Florida State, I said, that doesn't mean anything. We're not, she said, Daddy, we got this. I'm like, no, no, you know. Then the fumble happened. And they're all running around in the end zone, and I'm going, I told you, I told you. They're like, no, no, we're going to be all right. And as even though we kept getting a few more points, it wasn't until it was 27 to 2, and there was like 40-something seconds left that I said, okay, we're good. I think we're going to win this one. (laughs) Have you ever missed a game and somebody taped it for you, but you found out how it played out before? And you already knew your team won, but you wanted to watch it anyway. You ever been there? Isn't that the most relaxed way to watch a ball game? I mean, I'm telling you, I'm one of these ones that I'm all the way through. But, buddy, when I know we've already won, that fumble in the end zone wouldn't have bothered me. Don't worry about it. It looks bad, but it ain't bad. God showed us who won. Yeah, there might be some things that go on all across the globe that make us think, oh, no. Relax. Challenge you tonight is this. Put everything you have. That's what faith is. Everything you have in Jesus Christ. He's the winner. I love you all. See you in a couple weeks. Thanks for coming.